Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. In elementary school, I had a long bus ride every day, lived out in the country. So to pass the time, we'd play games on the bus, sing along to America's Top 40, tell jokes. But puns and riddles were my personal favorite uh, because I could often create rather embarrassing moments among my friends. And I'd set the trap by warning the other kids ahead of time that only the smartest could figure out these riddles in less than a minute. Now, if you know the answer, please don't shout it out loud. That kind of ruins the point of the illustration here, okay? So, I usually started out with the simplest riddle, right? The first one, a question. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Now, if they were stumped, I'd say, okay, that's a tough one. I admit it, that's really tough, so let's move on to something easier. What color is George Washington's gray horse? Hmm. Now, if they got that, I'd move on to something slightly more difficult. Say there's a one-story house. It's blue on the outside, pink on the inside. What color are the stairs? If they got that, I'd move on to something even more difficult. Here's a blue house. Here's a red house. Where's the White House? Now, in my childish delight, I just, I had so much fun with this because most kids were actually stumped. And I cannot tell you how enjoyable it was because usually the kids that were stumped the longest were the smartest kids in the class. (laughs) And their biggest problem was they would overthink the question. And so they would miss the obvious answer. Now, just in case there's some of you here are, who are too smart for your britches, let me help you out, okay? Grant is buried in Grant's tomb. George Washington's gray horse is gray. Very good, very good. And it's a one-story house, so there are no stairs. And where's the White House? Any political science majors here? Washington, D.C. Yes, that's very good, okay? Now, similarly, but less humorously, we can get stumped by the book of Revelation because it seems that it's filled with riddles. But contrary to popular belief, the book of Revelation wasn't written to conceal and confuse. I know that's surprising, but it's true. It's the book of Revelation, so its purpose is to reveal. And the title of the book comes in the opening sentence, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I know many people think that it's a coded puzzle book, that uh, if you can crack the code, you can predict the precise date Jesus is coming back or what the sign of the beast is. My personal favorite is that it's your social security number until COVID hit, and then people thought, well, maybe it's the vaccine. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, I'm being a little facetious. To repeat Vern Poitras, who was a scholar that taught regularly on the book of Revelation, he said, you know, it's often the times of children would understand it the best. And he says this, Revelation is not a puzzle book. Rather, it's a picture book 
the picture book. And I mentioned that the first time when I gave the introduction. It reveals Jesus Christ. And so if we don't see Jesus Christ, then we probably are missing the main point. It reveals how Jesus is in control of all things and how he works throughout history to establish his kingdom in this broken and rebellious and confusing world. Now, we're going to continue our series through this book. We're actually just going to cover the first three chapters uh, over this summer series. Tonight we pick up in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and you can follow along in the worship guide as I read the passage out loud. Starting at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We're going to talk, first of all, just about sort of some general patterns of the letters, and then we're going to dive into the specific issues in the letter to uh, Pergamum. We're going to look at Jesus' evaluation of the church, uh, the appeal or the warning he gives, as well as the promises that he gives. Uh, So Jesus is dictating, we're in the midst of reading Jesus' dictation to seven letters, uh, seven letters to seven churches through the Apostle John. Now, each church was a real historical congregation that was wrestling with issues of their cultural moment, obstacles and challenges from within and temptations from without. Each faced different dynamics and challenges, yet, as you read through the book of Revelation, you will discover that as much as things change, things tend to stay the same. Things may have changed around the outside in terms of language or cultural assumptions, but but at the center, much has stayed the same. The cultural packaging may look a little different, but the central temptations and challenges are not different at all. And the temptations that we read about already in the book of Ephesus was the temptation to focus on doctrine but fail to really love Jesus. And the challenge to the church at Smyrna was was the challenge of weariness under persistent persecution. And then as we'll see tonight by studying the church of Pergamum, the temptation is to compromise the truth of the gospel, to make it more digestible in order to maybe avoid mockery in the culture or persecution. And these temptations were alive and well in the first century church, and they remain alive and well today. 
Now, like I said, we've already discussed the church of Ephesus and the church of Smyrna, and tonight we're going to focus on the church of Pergamum. Now, I want to look at the personal approach that Jesus makes to each of these churches. And in order to understand that, you've got to kind of see the general form of every letter. Okay, so when we look at the, the Ephesus church, it was maybe the backslidden church, the Smyrna church, the persecuted church. But before I get into the Pergamum church, I want to look at the general pattern Okay, first, there's an address. There's always to the angel of the church at blank, right blank, right? After the address, there's followed by this metaphorical characteristic of Jesus, which was already mentioned in chapter 1. And uh, so we'll see for the church of Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands. And of Smyrna, it was of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life. And Jesus is kind of using this vivid image to show something about his characteristic to speak within the particular challenge they faced. So because this church is Smyrna, struggled with persecution, it's no wonder that he says, I'm the first and the last, sovereign over all persecution, and I am the one who died and came back to life. Well, in Pergamum, he appeals to the one who holds a two-edged sword, Okay, so this letter is from the great and skilled warrior, Jesus Christ, the one who stands equipped to fight on behalf of his people with the most powerful weapon, the same one that spoke creation into existence, the same one in Galatians 5 and Hebrews 4. And in Hebrews 4, we see uh, this word is described as a double-edged sword that pierces joint and marrow. It's able to divide soul and spirit to distinguish the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the word of God that Jesus communicates like no other. And so, as we are looking at this form, after we see, uh, you know, Jesus describe himself by a vivid metaphor that kind of uh, basically... Um, enables us to imagine his wonder and his glory, he moves on to um, an evaluation where he gives commendations and condemnations to the church, speaking words of comfort and correction, and then he gives warning, you know, repent, and if not, I will come to you soon, right? And then at last he gives an appeal that he, whoever listens and hears will be blessed, and he gives a promise of blessing. So that's the general outline, okay? And in each one, it's very personal. He doesn't say what he says to the Pergamum church, to the Smyrna church. It's very personal. And he'll always say, I know you. I know your situation. He's, he, it's an intimate approach. He knows them. The, the, the correction is like a parent's correction. You know, my kids are always wondering, like, why don't you do this to my sibling? I'm like, because your sibling doesn't need that. But you do. And so we're talking about you. And that's what Jesus is. He's like the perfect parent as the head of his church who is personally giving each church exactly what it needs, the encouragement it needs, and the challenge it needs exactly where it needs it. Now, part of understanding this personal approach is, is knowing the spiritual context of these churches. And in verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. And where do they dwell? Well, where Satan's throne is. Now, it's helpful to know a bit of the background of the city of Pergamon. Pergamon boasted of having a great throne-like altar to Zeus, 
It also held the cult of Asclepius, who was designated its savior and whose symbol was a serpent. So Christians would have definitely connected that with uh, the great serpent of Satan. But also, and mainly, Pergamum boasted of having the oldest temple in Asia Minor for emperor worship. It was the official center of emperor worship. Now, Revelation is always giving the spiritual background, not just the physical realities, and that's part of its personal approach. Revelation analyzes the history by peering beneath the surface of the social and political powers and exposing the spiritual forces at work behind the scenes. Now, that doesn't mean the book negates human responsibility or human agents or social institutions, but it sets them within its fuller cosmic context. And just as the kingdom of God has both spiritual and physical aspects, so does Satan's domain, which is just trying to counterfeit God's kingdom. It has both spiritual, right, demons and physical aspects, human agents and organizations, whether they know it or not, who are advancing his agenda. And Satan seeks to undermine God's people and Jesus' kingdom, and he uses all means at his disposals, whether it's political, economic, social, or religious. So in Jesus' letter here, we always have to recognize he's speaking not just to a physical reality, but to a spiritual reality. And he clarifies in his letter to Smyrna that Satan can even be identified with a synagogue that had rejected the Messiah. The unbelieving Jewish community were the ones that continually dragged Christians before the Roman magistrates for persecution and martyrdom. And so so Satan can even take things that look godly and good and twist them and use them for uh, means that are destructive to God's kingdom. So Satan's a spiritual force moving behind this Jewish roaming attempt to to destroy the church, whether it's through uh, emperor worship or uh, whether it's through this persecution coming from Jews who had rejected the Messiah. So Jesus' approach is personal, and, and, and he also gives us a spiritual background. Now let's jump into the particular evaluation of the Pergamum church, right? Let's look at Jesus' evaluation. Okay, in verse 13, he first gives his commendations. Let's cover that first. Verse 13, he says, You hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antip- uh, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. On this account, the city of Pergamum, or the church, that is, is faithful. They hold fast to their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they refuse to deny the faith, even to the point of death. And one per- person in particular, Antipas, was martyred. Now, no one knows who Antipas was, It's sufficient that Jesus recognizes him as a faithful witness, and interestingly, his name means against all, against all, antipas, against all. In other words, he's a faithful witness who lived up to his namesake. He was willing to stand up against all, no matter the persecution, in order to show his steadfast love for Jesus by standing up against all and enduring persecution even to death. But after commending them for their steadfast faith under persecution, Jesus identifies, again, very personally, where they as a church are failing, and he gives them a stark warning and correction, even a rebuke. See, here's the reality. While other churches were tempted to abandon their faith under persecution, Pergamum, thankfully, was not cowed 
by persecution, but they were seduced by idolatry and fornication. See, Satan's not all that complicated. He tends to use either a carrot or a stick. And some churches and some individuals are primarily caused to doubt God and his goodness through the stick Satan uses of persecution and suffering. But others are most tempted to doubt, most tempted to waver in their faith, not by the stick, but by the carrot of this world and all the pleasures that come with it. And this is what Jesus means when he refers to the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. If you look at verse 14 and 15, he says this, but I have a few things against you. Some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught that Balak, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. See, when, when the Moabite king Balak discovered, and he, he actually discovered this through the prophet Balaam, that God's people could not be defeated in open warfare because God was among them. Balaam instead suggested to the king that the only way to destroy Israel was through corruption. And that's summarized in Numbers 31, verse 16. The prophet Balaam taught the Moabite king how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, asking them, seducing them to participate in idolatrous practices of the pagan neighbors and to commit sexual fornication. And that's exactly what happened. And many in Israel were seduced into the idolatry of the Moabites, which went along with just a whole bunch of sexual sin. They destroyed their testimony as God's people and called down God's judgment on themselves. Now, most commentators think that both teachings, that of Balaam in the Old Testament and that of the Nicolaitans in the New Testament, or in the contemporary society of the New Testament, that both those teachings actually refer to the same thing, essentially. According to David Chilton, even the name Nicolaio means conqueror or destroyer of the people. In other words, the the Nicolaitans, by imitating Balaam, were out to destroy God's people, not through persecution, but through seduction, through pleasure. Now, how does this apply? Jesus knows his people's weakness. He knows there are those of us who are most tempted to become faithless in order to avoid pain or because we've had pain in our life. And he also knows there are those of us who are far more likely to doubt and exchange our faith for sexual pleasure and material comfort. Which are you? Now, it's not always that simple, is it? Sometimes we're both Sometimes we're more the one than the other. Sometimes it's a stage of life thing. I think oftentimes in our youth, we're more tempted to abandon the faith in order to seek the pleasures of the world. And then when we go out and actually imbibe in the pleasures of the world, we think, this isn't that good. (laughs) But then we start to get old and we start to experience suffering in life. And then that becomes the thing that can undermine our faith. So know yourself. But not only know yourself, but it's also important to know our cultural moment. To me, it seems that Satan's tool at the moment is not so much persecution, although that may be coming, at least in America. It seems that his tool to distract and undermine the faith of God's people 
Now, to cause them to lose faith is pleasure. I think a bigger danger for many of us and is, is to seek sexual pleasure, material comfort, acceptance, uh, acceptance by culture, by um, not standing strong on the truth of God. And so we need to, to examine where are you tempted to forsake the truth? And Jesus' words for you are to identify that and to confess it and repent of it. The next thing he says in his appeal, after his evaluation, he gives an appeal. He says in verse 16, Repent, and if not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is saying here that he really, really cares about how we live. Now, that comes as a surprise to many people in our culture who tend to think that God doesn't really bother about uh, what people do in their personal lives. He must be too busy running the universe. But the God of the Bible is, is intimately concerned about how we live our lives. And he calls us to live a life of holiness. And so Jesus says, repent, or he himself will war against you with the words of his mouth. Now, how does Jesus war against us with the words of his mouth? What, what does that mean? Well, I think first there, there's, a, there's a present sense to that that leads to an ultimate sense, but there's also an individual sense that leads to a corporate sense. So how do I mean? When Jesus wars against you with the words of his mouth, it means that he's not going to let you feel comfortable with your sin and idolatry. All sin, all, di- all idolatry, I think, is booby-trapped. We see this throughout the scriptures. All idols are made with feet of clay. They crumble under the, their own weight. All sexual immorality, for example, just degenerates into to more and more perverted forms. All types of sinful addictions devolve. Your desire goes up, your satisfaction goes down until you're an empty shell. And those of you who've struggled with addiction would rightly describe it as a, as a living hell. And that's because it is a present reality that left unchecked, unrepented of, grows into something that can become an eternal reality. And so Jesus says you must repent. And Jesus in his goodness will fight against you with the words of his mouth. He is a disruptor of the status quo of enjoying sin. Now, there's also corporate aspects to this. Jesus isn't just concerned about you. He's concerned about all all of his people. And so he warns in verse 14, he says, there's some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, um, and that's a stumbling block. And so Jesus is calling his holy people that those who hold to this false teaching need to be expelled from the community. You can't allow this teaching to continue. Why? Because it's like a virus. It's like a cancer, and it spreads. And we just got done with a virus. And it's very interesting that when it comes to a physical virus like COVID-19, we get this. We understand the corruptive, defiling nature of things that are out of line with health. But when it comes to spiritual 
or moral viruses, we tend to forget that. We tend to think, well, who am I to tell them what they can and can't do? Let them come to their own conclusions. Love is love. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, no, it's not okay just to say love is love. Love is not love if it ignores the truth. And he calls us to walk in love and truth. And here again, the risen Jesus is declaring sin is sin, idolatry is idolatry, sexual immorality is sexual immorality, and you not only need to care about your own sexual purity, but the sexual purity of the community. And we are to stand up and encourage one another and rebuke one another and advocate for what is good, right, true, and beautiful. And Jesus cuts through the mind-numbing, brainwashing that's happening in our culture and has happened throughout time, which is idolatry is no big deal, sexual immorality is no big deal, and he gives a clarion call to repentance. And that's what Jesus means when he says, if you fail to repent, I will fight you with the words of my mouth. Your idolatry will tumble in on itself, leading to a living hell that can become an eternal hell if you do not repent. And it is contagious like a virus. And so you need to not only think about your own repentance, but if there is false teaching, you need to expel it from the church and seek to hold to God's truth. Forsake not the truth. Now, after he gives this appeal or this warning to repent, and if you don't, it will not go well for you, he offers a blessing. And he says this in verse 17, he repeats it in verse 16, for the one who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, repent. And to the one who neither denies their faith to avoid pain, like Antipas, nor exchanges the truth for lesser pleasures of idolatry and sexual immorality, the one who does that, who listens and obeys, that person will conquer because they hold fast to faith faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus promises three blessings to those who listen and obey. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Now, manna was the sweet food that God provided for his people, Israel, in the wilderness. And so God is promising that if you trust him and obey, in the same way, God will provide daily nourishment in the wilderness of our broken world, whether it's the wilderness of trials and suffering and persecution, or it's the wilderness of worldly seduction and temptations, God abides with his people, providing sweet sustenance so they can faithfully endure the wilderness of life's pains and temptations. And brothers and sisters, that's not just a promise from someone on high. That is a promise from our dear Lord, who, who walked this path, who was persecuted to the point of death, even death on a cross, who was tempted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and yet proved to all of us that by trusting in his heavenly Father and waiting upon the Lord, he had a hidden manna that was sweet to his soul and sustained him through all. That's the one who makes the promise. So you can trust the promise. Do you know that hidden manna that God provides for his people in the wilderness? 
It's not just sufficient for enduring persecution. It's sufficient for enduring every type of temptation that can come your way. Because his promises are better. His presence is sweeter. And those who have tasted of him know exactly what I mean, that he is good. He is the more beautiful captivation that enables you to ignore lesser beauties. He is the true bread of heaven. So not only do you get hidden manna, but the second blessing is a white stone. Now, what is the white stone that Jesus promises? Commentators really don't know for sure because white stones were used for multiple purposes. But as you read through all the purposes, they're all very positive, okay? So for example, white stones could be used like a ticket to the feast, right? Like a wedding invitation. And so if that's the case, this could mean those who conquer by faith are invited a personal invitation to God's party, a heavenly banquet. Okay, a white stone was also used as a token of acquittal. A panel of judges would often vote on someone's guilt or innocence with stones. They would put it in a jar. If the person was innocent, they'd put a white stone. If they were guilty, they'd put a black stone. They'd count up all the stones, whatever was in the majority. They would take that color stone and give it to the one who was standing trial. And so it would mean that those who keep faith in Jesus are declared innocent because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I know of a pastor, I think this is a great idea, who passed out white pebbles to his congregation. (laughs) And he asked them to carry it in their pocket. I don't have white stones. Probably should have brought them, but... To carry it in their pocket as a reminder of their justification in Christ so that when they're tempted to believe Satan's accusations that they're no different, that nothing's changed, that they can't be forgiven, to take out that white stone as a reminder of what Christ has done for them on a cross by paying for their sin in full, past, present, and future. So maybe that's what it means. There were white stones that were called, uh, I never know how to pronounce this, bedellum, B-D-E-L-L-I-U-M. This stone's mentioned as one of the precious stones in the Garden of Eden. It's also used to describe the color of manna in Exodus 16. So, if that's the case, in addition to referring to God's sustenance for his people, the white stone could be a metaphor for a new creation, restoring God's people to paradise, to the garden where they can eat free of the tree of the knowledge, uh, to eat, uh, eat of the tree of life. So we don't know which white stone in particular Jesus meant, since the white stones were used in multiple ways, but we know that Jesus has many and multiple precious blessings for those who persevere by faith. And maybe that's the point. Rather than emphasize a single blessing, Jesus is saying, I have blessing upon blessing upon blessing. They are not few and far between. They are many. They are precious. They are enduring. You will have acceptance and forgiveness and access to a new creation. Lastly, not only are you given manna, a white stone, lastly, a new name. And the fact that the new name is written on the white stone seems to emphasize the personal nature of the blessing. It's not just a broad invitation to the banquet, but you have been singled out. Your name has been engraved personally to be invited to the banquet. It's not just a generalized acquittal. God justifies you. He knows every sin And every dark corner of your heart and your mind and everything that makes you feel condemned and guilty and ashamed, he knows everything. But he has acquitted you and written your name on a white stone to remind you that he has atoned for every sin by the blood of Christ. And when God restores you to paradise, your name will be precious to him. 
And while you will be one among many saints, you will be uniquely precious. But there's another layer of meaning that may be at work here. And it may have been more practical to the Christians in Pergamum. Archaeologists have discovered that pink granite dominated the area and was what was used most often in the buildings for the city because it was widely available. But in the ruins, archaeologists have also found special inscriptions on imported white marble. These stones were not only costly to acquire, but they were supremely valuable because they stuck out as unique. And they were valuable as signs and memorials which gave a greater testimony than any other stone. And if that's the case, what does this mean? It means that that real prestige, the kind that God gives to his people, comes from not blending in with culture, not being just one of many, but by being distinct and holy. And your distinctiveness and your holiness comes from giving a testimony, pointing to someone more beautiful than yourself, giving great honor to it. And this would have been a fitting reminder to people who are in danger of being seduced into mixing with the paganism and the pleasures of the world and entangle themselves in those self-serving lies. And instead, it would encourage them to recognize their unique value and beauty because of who they are in Christ Jesus. So there we have it. There's warning for those who forsake the truth, for idolaters who give up on the faith because they'd rather have the comforts of this world and the pleasures of the flesh. And they should not expect to continue enjoying them for God. Jesus himself will make war on you with the word of his mouth. But those who persevere by faith will conquer and will be giving blessings that are many, that are valuable, and that are enduring. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word to your church. We thank you that as the great head of your church, you know us intimately and personally. You know Westminster You know our strengths, and you know our weaknesses. And Lord, I pray for the leadership of this church that you would make us always humble and willing to listen to your word and compare ourselves not to other churches, but to your holy word. To rejoice where we are blessed, to rejoice where there is faithfulness, to rejoice where we are aligning with your promises and trusting in them, but also to in humility seek to repent, whether in big ways or nuanced ways, for ways in which we fall short. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory, for the growth of your church. And what's true of the church corporate is also true of us individually. Lord, you know each and every person in this room. Lord, I pray that these words would not just be words that gloss over, but would penetrate the heart. That we all would would take moments to, to consider Where am I most likely to be tempted? Where is the vulnerable spot in my heart and mind right now? And Lord, to be able to call out to others for help and for prayer and help us as a church to come alongside one another, encourage one another, remind one another of your promises, weep with those who weep, and be what you've called us to be as a church. And we pray this for your glory. And we pray this so that we might 
Know the sweetness of that hidden manna. Know the preciousness of being that white stone. And know the preciousness of having a new name. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.